Uh, this morning uh, is kind of a big day because we are finishing the story of Acts. And we have been, we started the story of Acts on January 20th, uh, 2013. And so for the better part of 18 months, we have just been walking through chapter by chapter, story uh, by story, uh, the story of Acts. And I went back and looked at my notes from the very first message. And the very first question that I asked all of us, and I realize not all of you were here 18 months ago, but the first question that was asked in this series was simply this, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth it? Um, that was the very first question that was, we were posed with, is Jesus worth it? Is Jesus worth all of you all of the time? And what's been inspiring and challenging and encouraging is that for the past 18 months as we walk through Acts, is we've seen a community of men and women uh, who said, yeah, Jesus is worth it. And because they said Jesus is worth it, uh, not only did they change the world they lived in, ultimately they've also changed the world that you and I live in. And so it was a really important question, and I pose it again, not just in the beginning, but also at the end. Is Jesus worth it? And how you decide to answer that question is going to significantly shape what your journey looks like. Um, I quoted this uh, gentleman, David Platt, who's a pastor author, 18 months ago, and he said this, we can rest content in casual, convenient, cozy, comfortable Christian lives as we cling to the safety and security this world offers. We can coast through a cultural landscape marked by materialism, characterized by consumerism, and engulfed in individualism. We can assent to the spirit of the age and choose to spend our lives seeking worldly pleasures, acquiring worldly possessions, and pursuing worldly ambitions, all under the banner of cultural Christianity. And I love how he said this and challenged us with this. Or we can decide that Jesus is worth more than this. And as I've said, 18 months, we've been able to see what a, a community of men and women, what they look like and how they lived because they said Jesus is worth more, more than our comfort, more than our convenience, more than what the world could ever give us. Jesus is worth more than this. And what's amazing is they changed the world, their world and our world. And again, I quoted this um, uh, Michael Green. He was a commentator on the book of Acts. And he said this, three crucial decades in world history. That's all it took. In the years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion in the world has ever seen and changed the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It spread into every corner of the globe and has made more than 2 billion presumed adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course, the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit of God came. A community of men and women who had a relationship with an extraordinary God were used by this extraordinary God to do extraordinary things. And as we saw week after week as we walked through this story is this truth played out. They got to have story after story of God doing amazing, extraordinary things in their midst. Now that we're at the end of this, one of the questions that I wrestled with was just this, is what was true for them, is it still true for us? 
is how they got to see God move and do amazing, extraordinary things. It, was that just like a one-off thing? Was that just like an anomaly that they got to see God do amazing, extraordinary things? Or is what they experienced, is what was true for them, is it actually true for us? Like, are we a people who would still get to see an extraordinary God do extraordinary things in our lives, through our lives, in our world that we live in? Now, I think most of us, or at least I hope all of us, would say, yeah, absolutely. God is still God. God in the first century is still God in the 21st century. He still does extraordinary things. And as I kind of sat with that question, I was like, you know what? This is probably the wrong question because it's easy to say, absolutely, God still wants to do amazing. God still wants to do extraordinary things in our midst. It's true, but I just don't know if that's the right question because if we ask that question and answer it absolutely, our tendency is just to sit back and wait for something to happen. Our tendency is just to say, well, I believe God's going to do amazing things, and I'm just going to kind of sit back and watch the amazing things that God might do with somebody else. And so the question that I feel like God laid on my heart that was a better question for us to wrestle with this morning is this, will we find people in the 21st century whose lives reflect the conviction that an extraordinary God still uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things? Will we find people here, not just across the 20, like, will we find people in this community, in this room, who live and operate under the conviction that, yes, an extraordinary God is still doing extraordinary things with and through ordinary people? And what I love about this question is it invites you every day to say, you know what, I'm either going to live for the moment, uh, whatever that moment might be, or Every day, I'm going to live expecting to experience the extraordinary work of an extraordinary God. Now, 18 months ago, I asked this question of, why did we even do Acts? Like, of all 66 books in the Bible, why do we pick Acts? There's lots of books we could have picked, so at that time, why did we pick Acts? And I wrote this down in my journal 18 months ago like this, I really believe God wants to use a community of nobodies who know somebody to make an eternal difference in the lives of those around us. I really believe that. And I'm not just saying that because I have to say that. Like, I really believe God wants to use this community to actually make a difference in people's lives. Uh, To make not people's lives just better in the here and now, but to make an eternally significant impact on their lives. And over the last 18 months, that belief has shown itself to be true. I've seen God do more in the last 18 months than I feel like I've seen him do in better part of my 41 years of living. Like I've seen God take ordinary people like me, like you, and do extraordinary things where people who didn't even know who God was now have a relationship with God. Where people who maybe grew up hearing something about God, had a relationship with God when they were five or 10, now in their 20s, 30s, 40s, they have a relationship again with God. I've seen marriages get healed. I've seen friendships get healed. I've seen relationships that were unreconcilable uh, have now reconciled. Why? Because an extraordinary God is still doing extraordinary things in our midst. I don't know about you, and I hope you would share that conviction, but I really believe that God wants to use a community of nobodies like us who know somebody, meaning who know Jesus, 
and still inviting us to be part of something just so much bigger than ourselves. I think one of the obstacles, as it were, that most of us face is you'd say, you know, Michael, I, it's not that I disagree with that, but I just doubt that God actually wants to use me. Like, I get that he wants to use maybe some other people, but I seriously doubt that God wants to actually use me to make a difference in anyone else's life, nonetheless make a difference in the world I live in. And I don't know if you've ever said this, but something along these lines, I'm a nobody, I could never have an impact on anybody, nonetheless the world around me. But the beauty of Acts, for 18 months, we've been reminded time and time and time again that God uses nobodies who know somebody, who know Jesus to make an incredible difference in the lives of those uh, that are around them. Now, there's 28 chapters in Acts, okay? We've walked through all 28 chapters. We've walked through, not covered every story that could be covered, but we've walked through 28 chapters. And in the 28th chapter, we find the Apostle Paul sitting in a prison in Rome awaiting trial. Now, What's interesting about how Luke actually ends this story uh, in Acts is Paul is sitting in prison, and we actually have no idea really what happens to Paul. It just says he finished, he was in prison for two years, and then the story ends. Now, when you pay attention to the other New Testament letters that Paul wrote, we know that Paul eventually was let out of prison after two years and had a few years where he traveled and, and um, uh, went and traveled to the different churches that he had planted, but And a few years later, he found himself back in a Roman prison where he was ultimately killed, martyred uh, by Nero. Now, why does Luke end 28 chapters of this phenomenal story kind of with this idea of we don't really know what happens to the Apostle Paul? Like if this was a modern day movie, most of the audience would be really frustrated. Like, well, what's the ending? You can't just leave one of the main characters just sitting in prison and we have no idea what happens to him. What about all the people that we've met along the way? What about all the churches that have been like, what is the end of this story? Luke, why did you finish 28 chapters with this? What happens next? And as I've been wrestling and thinking and praying about this, I think the ending of the story of Acts is actually ended with great intentionality. Meaning I think Luke wanted his audience to know that the story does not end with Paul in prison. The story does not just end with the men and the women that we met along the way. I think what Luke wants us to know is that the story is still being told by every man, woman, and child that has decided that Jesus is worth it. One of the things that I just wrote down is, you are 29. You and I are the ongoing story, as it were. You and I are the 29th chapter. I think Luke ended it with not knowing what happened because he wanted us to know the story didn't end there. You and I, men and women who still follow Jesus today, are still living in the ongoing story of God. You're 29. You are 29. I am 29. We're the ongoing story as it were. So what I wanted to do this morning as we finish up the story of Acts, is kind of look backwards, but also look forwards. If it's true that you're 29, and I know for some of you, you're like, that sounds so nice to be 29. But you are. You are 29. The ongoing story. So if it's true that you are 29, that we are the 29th chapter, part of the ongoing story of God, 
kind of what I had in my mind this week is, what would the people who lived between the first and 28th chapter, what would they want to tell the 29th chapter people? Like, what would they tell us? They lived chapter 1 through chapter 28. If we're the 29th chapter, what would they want to tell us about living and moving forward as the 29th chapter? Now, I'm going to share with you a few different things of things that I think they would tell us. And as we go through this, some of you, if not all of you, are going to be like, Michael, that's so simple. That's not like anything new. And as I've gone through the story of Acts, I see a community of men and women who simply just did what God told them to do, and they got to see God be God. It wasn't complicated. It wasn't complicated at all. And as I'm getting older, one of the things that I'm learning is, Michael, don't complicate what is not complicated. Just simply do the things that God has told us to do and watch God be God. Watch God do extraordinary things. So here's a list of sorts, and not in any particular order, but I think the first thing the people of Acts would tell the 29th chapter people is this. First thing I think they'd say is pray. Just pray. I really am convinced that what they would tell you to do, what they'd tell me to do as the 29th chapter is just pray. These men and women prayed like it was the most important thing they could do because I think they realized it was the most important thing to do. They, throughout the story, Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 28, they're constantly in prayer. And we first see this in Acts chapter 1. And what's really interesting is Jesus has just told them, guys, go change the world. Go into every corner of the world and make disciples, make followers of me. Okay, so he's given them this incredible mission. And the people that are listening to Jesus give this mission, it's about roughly 100 plus people, men and women. Now, if you were there, if you were one of the 100, as it were, and Jesus just gave you a mission as large as go change the world, go into all of the world and change the world, what, are, what do you think you would do if you were part of that group? Like, would any of you say, all right, guys, we got the marching orders. We got the plan. Now let's sit down and strategize how we can do this. Let's kind of whiteboard out what's our first step, what's our second step, what's our third step, what are the things that we definitely need to do, what are things we need to definitely avoid, and have a strategy session. How many of you would not do a strategy session per se, but how many of you would just be paralyzed? Are you kidding me? We can't do that. How could we possibly go in? We don't have the, the means and, and the... And, and everything that we need to make this happen. And you literally would just be paralyzed by fear and worry and anxiety of, it's not going to work. We'll never be able to accomplish this. Or how many of you would just simply, well, I don't know what to do, and I'm kind of freaked out, so I'm just going to kind of look busy, so I at least appear somewhat spiritual that I'm doing something. I'm not really doing anything, but I'm doing at least something. What I love about what these men and women did the first thing that they did when Jesus said, go change the world is, they said, we better pray. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says this, all these with one accord, meaning about the hundred plus, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. With one accord, they came together and they just started praying. And because they did that first, it really shaped what chapter 2 and chapter 3 all the way through chapter 28 looked like. One of the things that I was thinking about is 
No one told them to do that. Like no one said, Jesus didn't say, hey, go change the world, make disciples, and before you do that, make sure you go pray first. So who gave them the idea, as it were, to actually go and start praying? Who told them that all that they could do, the most important thing to do, was pray? And I don't think someone told them to do it. I think someone showed them. These men and women had spent better part of three years with Jesus. And the thing that these men and women saw Jesus do was pray. And they saw that when Jesus prayed, things happened. Things changed. People were healed. Dead people came back to life. And so they weren't necessarily told to go pray. They were showed prayer is the most important, the most significant thing that you can do. And so this is a community of men and women that prayed. And what I love about these men and women in the 28 chapters of Acts is prayer was not just an afterthought, it was their first thought. It was not something they, that they did after exhausting every other option. It was the very first thing that they did. And here's the beauty. When they prayed, they actually saw God do what God loves to do when his people come together and pray. God loves to answer prayer. God loves to answer the prayers of his people. And so as they prayed, they saw God do, they saw God be God. They saw God be extraordinary and do extraordinary things in response to how the people were praying. I don't think the problem that we have is that God just isn't listening. He doesn't care. He's grown indifferent towards us. I think what the issue is, we've grown slothful and lazy in prayer. We might talk about prayer, we might read about prayer, we might think about prayer, but there's a big difference in thinking and talking and reading and studying on prayer and actually praying. And the men and women of Acts, they didn't think about it and talk about it and study it and read it. They actually just got down on their knees and prayed that God would do amazing in their midst. So our question, my question, what role does prayer currently play in your life? Is it an afterthought where you're like, I don't know what to do anymore. I'm kind of stuck in this relationship. I don't know how to fix this relationship. I don't know what to do. Go left, go right, go straight, go forward. I guess I now, I'm, after I've exhausted every other, I, I guess I'll just pray. Or is prayer the first thing that you do? And I don't just mean in decisions. I mean, when you get out of bed, your first thought is, God, thanks for another day with you. And I'm excited, God, to experience whatever it is you want me to experience this day. And the tone of your day starts with, God, I'm going to walk with you throughout this day. Would you speak? Now, how you answer the question of what role does prayer play in your life is ultimately going to reveal what role prayer plays in our life. And I mean the community. Because if we're not a people that pray, then we're not going to be really a community collectively that is going to God saying, God, we want to see you do extraordinary in our midst. Charles Spurgeon said it really well. He said, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. If God be near a church, it must pray. If God be near a church, it must pray. If he is not there, if he, be, if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be slothfulness in prayer. I know for me, for years, I just felt guilty when it came to prayer. 
because I just felt like I was terrible at prayer. I was inconsistent with prayer. I didn't pray like I could and should and, and knew I was supposed to. I didn't pray because I was just, I feel too guilty every time I do it. So I don't want to feel like that. So I just don't do it. Over the last 18 months, one of the things that God's taught me about prayer is prayer is actually a gift from him for us to enjoy. It's a privilege. It's not a burden. It's not a pain. It is an absolute joy and gift from God that he says, just pray and watch what I'll do. One of the things I just wanted to encourage you with is we put that on the wall over there for the reason of, can we be the people that really believe that what's most important, the thing that we can do that matters more than anything is just pray. And we will never stop praying. Every Sunday morning, you have the opportunity on the cards in your chair pocket to write down prayer requests. My heart would be to see hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prayer requests every single week that we will be praying for you. Every Sunday morning, you have the opportunity, uh, if God has just been tugging on your heart, if he's been challenging you, convicting you, we have men and women from our prayer team at every single service that are here just to pray with you, to pray for you. Every Wednesday, we gather for prayer. Our entire community is invited to come just for the sole purpose of praying. And one of the things that's going to be new starting actually this week, and please pay attention to things like the website because this is where we announce these things, uh, is we're going to have themed nights for our prayer. So one Wednesday night, it's just going to be, hey, all men of Genesis, get together this Wednesday and we're just going to pray as men. One Wednesday, all the women of Genesis, we're getting together, you're getting together as women to pray. If you're married, all the married couples get together on this Wednesday because we're going to pray for your marriages. We're going to pray for your relationships. If you're married with kids, one night is honestly going to be bring your kids with you and we're going to pray with your kids and for your kids and invite the kids to pray. There are so many opportunities that you and I have at this community, within this community, to be praying. And I just wanted to invite you, I feel like what they would tell us, if you're going to be the ongoing story, the 29th chapter, you got to pray. Husbands, start praying for and with your wives. I, I meet too many husbands who say, Michael, I just, my relationship with my wife is, it, it's horrific. There's no intimacy, there's no connection, there's no relationship. Are you praying with her? Are you praying for her? Well, no, it's just too hard. Well, you're not going to have any of those things if you don't lead your relationship to prayer. If you have kids, get together with your kids every day and just see what God will do with and through your kids as you start praying. That's the first thing I feel like the first century people would tell the 21st century people is pray. The second thing I think they would say is simply this. Don't go it alone. I think they tell us to pray. And then secondly, I think they would tell us, don't go it alone. No matter how difficult it is, live life in the context of community because life is better together with God. Don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Again, I'm just picking out one story, one section in the story, in the, in the story of Acts. But in Acts 4, it paints the picture of community. In Acts 4, it says this, all the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt like uh, they felt that what they owned was not their own. And so they shared everything. 
They had. They, the apostles testified powerfully about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There was no needy people among them. Again, that's just one snapshot of what community looked like in the first century. And what I loved about this picture is the community, they knew each other. They met one another's needs, physical needs, financial needs, relational needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs. People's needs were met because people didn't go it alone. People in the first century, I I really believed, they would say, life is better together with God, together with God. So let me ask the question, which of these three best describes you today? Not just what you hope to be tomorrow, but today, which best describes you? You, by yourself. You, by yourself, just kind of doing life on your own. Does that describe you? Or does what describes you even better, it's actually you and God. You've got your own thing going on with God, but it's just you and God. It's kind of the Lone Ranger approach. God's kind of in your rearview mirror, but it's you and him trucking along. Or is what describes you best, you, me, and God. Doing life with God, with others, because you're convinced life is better together with God. I know there's all sorts of reasons of why community would be hard. I get that there's all sorts of reasons as why that would be a challenge for you. I think some people would just say, like, I'm too busy. I've got so much stuff going on in my life, I don't have time to be in community. I think some people would just simply say, I don't want to be in community because I'm hurt. Last time I was in community, I got hurt, I got burned, I got disappointed, I got let down. I think for some people, they would just say, you know what, it's really weird. There are some really weird, strange, freaky people in the church, and I don't like hanging with weird, freaky people, and so I choose not to. I think some of you would say, I'm hurt, and I've been hurt, and I've been hurt a lot, and I don't want to get hurt again. I think some of you would say, it's just way too complicated. Way too complicated to have relationship, have community, as it were. I think some of you would say, I'm hurt, and I got hurt really bad. And so I've chosen the path of just going solo because I don't really want to put myself out there again. And clearly, I mentioned that one three times because that's the one that I, I feel like I hear the most. And I'm not saying that's not real. I understand that you've been hurt, but I just wanted you to know you were created by God to live in community. And as best as I can possibly understand community, you can come to church but not really be in community. You can even go to community group and still not be in community. You're around community, yes, but you can still not be in community. How I understand community is simply this. You're known. There are people who know you. And I mean like know you mask-free, no pretense, no just happy smile. They know you. They know your hurts. They know your struggles. They know your success. They know you, where you don't have to put on a front. So the question then becomes, do you have people in your life who know you? And conversely, do you have people that you know? And I mean you know them, mask-free, This is the community that I see in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 28. People knew each other and they were known by each other. Another way to think of this is 
Do you have someone in your life, people in your life, who actually love you enough to tell you what you need to hear rather than what you want to hear? Anyone can have people in your life that will tell you what you want to hear, what will make you feel good, what won't challenge you. But you have somebody, you have people in your life who will say, you know what, you're wrong. What you're doing, those decisions you're making, you're missing what God has for you. Do you have people in your life who would challenge you and call you to repent? And not only do you have people who do that for you, do you do that for people? I think the men and women from the first century would tell the men and women in our century, in this room, don't go it alone. I like how Steve Timmis in his book, Total Church, said it like this. I am a person in community. I cannot be who I am without regard to other people. By becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my brothers and sisters. It is not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church, meaning be part of a community. My being in Christ means being in Christ with those uh, with those others who are in Christ. If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. Meaning if you're a Christian, you, can't, you can choose to live in isolation, but you're missing it. If you're a Christian, that means you have other brothers and sisters, and you're part of the family. And what I love, am challenged, and inspired by the men and women in the first century, and what I think they tell us is, don't go it alone. Because they were convinced, and I hope you'll be convinced, that life is better together with God. I think the third thing that they would tell us, men and women from the first century, speaking into our century, would be this. Be with Jesus. Be with Jesus. I think they would simply look at us and say, pray, don't go it alone, and just be with Jesus. If you want real transformation in every aspect of your life, then get yourself around Jesus every day, all day. Every person that came into contact with Jesus was different. They were changed. They were transformed. I look at, again, I'm just picking on one story here in Acts chapter 4. Peter and James and John, they were the guys who completely deserted Jesus. Peter denied even knowing him. And just a few months later, these same men who deserted and denied even knowing Jesus are preaching that everyone else should come to place their faith in Jesus. And the religious leaders, the, the Jewish priests, they got together because they were so frustrated with what these men were preaching. And it says in verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who'd been with Jesus. These are just normal dudes. They don't have PhDs and a bunch of letters behind their name. They have no special training. But these guys are bold. Wait, did you just say Peter was bold? Because when a young girl asked him, do you even know Jesus? He swore to God he didn't. And now you're looking at Peter and saying, that, that, that dude is bold. He's courageous. And did you catch why? They recognized them as men who'd been with Jesus. Everyone who came into contact with Jesus was changed, was different. You look at someone like Saul. He was a murderer, hated Christians, hated Christianity, and did anything and everything he could to put an end to it. But he meets Jesus, and what's he, what happens? From Saul to Paul, incredible transformation. 
So maybe the question just simply is, what does it really look like for you, for me, to be with Jesus? And my answer to that question of how I answer that question is simply this. I spend time every day in the Bible learning about Jesus, paying attention to what Jesus said, paying attention to how Jesus lived. So every day I spend time. And then every day, that same day, I do it imperfectly, but my goal, my heart is, now just go be like Christ to every person you meet. What you know about Jesus from your time with Jesus, now go be like Jesus to everybody that you meet. Go be loving, compassionate, kind, forgiving, gracious, generous. Why? Well, because that's, that's who Jesus is. So to be with Jesus is to be like Jesus. One of the things that Jesus said, and he just made so clear, and I think we often try to prove him wrong, is Jesus said in John 15, those who remain in me, I in them, will produce much fruit. Meaning there's going to be lasting change, transformation that impacts you and those around you. But for apart from me, you can do nothing. I think sometimes it's just easy to live life saying, you know what, I'm going to prove how much I can do actually apart from Jesus. But Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do anything, anything meaningful, anything lasting. But he says, but with me, with me, gosh, you're going to see change. You're going to see transformation. You're going to see healing. You're going to see fruit. So if you're here today and you just feel stuck, and you feel stuck in life, you feel stuck in marriage, you feel stuck in relationships, you just feel stuck Spirit, you're just stuck across the board. My encouragement to you would simply be, listen to the voices and learn from those who went before us. Shouting to you, be with Jesus. Be with Jesus and allow Jesus to do in you and through you what he wants to do. I think the third thing they tell us is be with Jesus. And it's such an incredible picture of how these men and women were described. Bold courageous, fearless, passionate, driven, world changers. Those are the words that were used to describe the men and women who came into contact with Jesus. I think the fourth thing that the first century would say to the 21st century, uh, would say to the 29th chapter people is this, say yes to the Spirit of God. Just say yes to the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God moves, when the Spirit of God prompts, when the Spirit of God speaks, say yes I think they would tell us simply, say yes to the Spirit of God. Live in such a way that the only reasonable explanation for your life is because of the Spirit of God. So many times in the story of Acts, how is that happening? How is that working? Uh, The Spirit of God. It doesn't make sense how you were able to see that or do that or say that or be here or go. I know, the Spirit of God. I don't know about you, but I want my life to be only explained because the Spirit of God is at work in my life. I want people to be asking questions. Michael, how is that happening? I know, it's crazy, Spirit of God. And I don't have any other explanation that I could point to and say, well, you know what? I worked really hard. I studied really hard. I did this really hard. I tried my effort. My, I just want to live a life that is explainable only by the Spirit of God. I think what they would tell us simply is say yes to the Spirit of God. This is a a small glimpse, as it were, of Pentecost when the Spirit of God showed up in Acts chapter 2, verse 4. 
It just simply said this, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. And what I didn't want you to miss there is all of them were filled, not just some of them. Men and women who had professed faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior were filled with the Holy Spirit. These men were not just given some help around the edges of their life. It wasn't like, okay, when you guys can't do it, when you've exhausted your resources, we're going to sprinkle a little Holy Spirit juice on you, and that's going to kind of make up for the difference. It says, and everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I love how Sam Storm's uh, pastor, author, commentator said this, God doesn't simply give us his spirit. He gives the spirit into us, not just to us, but by an act of what can only be called in intimate impartation. His spirit resides within to encourage, energize, enable. The spirit isn't just here. He's inside. If you're a Christian, meaning you've professed faith in Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God, you have the spirit of God living in you. And I think one of the lies that many people often choose to believe is, I only have the spirit of God living in me like when I'm being really spiritual. Like when I go to church, when I read my Bible, when I pray, that's when I have the spirit of God in me. But I haven't read my Bible recently. I haven't gone to church recently. I haven't done this, this, and this. So, you know, I got to start doing these things to get back the spirit of God in my life. That's just not true. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And what these men and women did in the first century that I feel like would scream to us, say yes to the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God leads, go where he leads. When the Spirit of God speaks and initiates, do what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. Every chapter in the story of Acts, we saw what the Spirit of God can do with people who are filled with the Spirit of God, empowered, encouraged, and equipped and one of the things I just wanted to be, I guess, clear on is the same spirit that was present in Acts 1 through chapter 28 is the same spirit that's present for the 29th chapter, for the ongoing story. I had lots of people over 18 months ask me, Michael, why don't we see the Holy Spirit like do more of what we saw in Acts chapter 1 through 28? And really the question is, it seems like the spirit of God has actually changed. And my answer, my heart in, in that conversation was, the Holy Spirit actually hasn't changed. The same Spirit of God who we see at work in chapter 1 through chapter 28 in the story of Acts is the same Spirit of God who is still living and active in each of us. It's not so much that the Spirit of God has changed. It's more of a question of, have we changed? Are we the ones who are saying yes to the Spirit that lives within us and I think the first century is screaming to us, say yes. When the Spirit of God moves, say yes. Uh, the final thing that I would share with you is this. I think what the, uh, the fifth final thing that they would tell us, the 29th chapter for us to, to hear is, make it about the kingdom of God. I think what they would tell us is, make your life about the kingdom of God. Make your lives not about uh, a kingdom that will not last, but about one that will last forever. Don't make it about you. Make it about his kingdom, an eternal kingdom, a lasting kingdom. It's, 
I don't know, intriguing to me that the uh, Luke leaves us in the last final two verses of the story of Acts, chapter 28, verse 30 and 31 says this, the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. He welcomed all who visited him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. I love that picture. That's how the story of Acts closes. Paul, what are you doing in prison? Well, I'm not talking to people about getting me out of prison. I'm not talking about people giving a jailbreak. What I'm talking about is anyone who comes to visit me where I am, I'm telling them about the kingdom of God, and I'm introducing them to the one who brings them into the kingdom of God. I think what they would tell us is make it about the kingdom of God. In life, we have a choice. We're either going to make it about us. We'll make it about our kingdom, our kingdom that won't last, our kingdom of grabbing as much as we can get, hanging on to as much as we can get, or we'll say, you know what? I don't want that. I want to be part of a kingdom that is eternal, that lasts forever. I think the men and women in the first century would tell us, be kingdom-minded in how you live. And the amazing picture in this is, if you choose to make your life about the kingdom of God, you're not going to be hindered. We saw through 28 chapters that God's kingdom cannot be stopped, it cannot be hindered. I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but I'll read this verse to you, is when Peter and the other apostles were preaching, uh, the religious leaders, Jewish leaders, did not like what they were doing. And so they put them in prison, they flogged them and said, stop doing what you're doing. Until one of the religious leaders stood up and his name was Gamil, he said this, so my advice, this is Acts 5, my advice, leave these men alone, let them go. If they are planning and doing these things merely on their own, it will soon be overthrown. But if it's from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even find yourselves fighting against God. If you make your life about God and his kingdom, nothing's going to stop. Nothing will hinder. But if you make your life about you, if you make your life about your kingdom and grabbing, as it were, it won't last and it will be overthrown. It won't last. One of the things that uh, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, commented on is the people who made the biggest impact in history are the very ones who actually had a very kingdom mindset. And he said this, if you read history, you will find the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. Men and women in chapter 1 through chapter 28 had a kingdom mindset, and they changed the world. Because they said it's not about our kingdom, it's about the kingdom of God. This is not the exhaustive list of what they'd say, but what I think these men and women would tell us to do is to pray, don't go it alone, be with Jesus, say yes to the Spirit of God, and make it about the kingdom of God. One of the things that we wanted to give you as a gift to help you remember that you are 29, that you are the ongoing story uh, that God is still writing out before us every day, as we wanted to give you a journal. And I know some of you are like, a journal? I don't journal. Today is a good day to start. Uh, and I know some of you already journal, and so you can take one of these as a gift. But what we have for you is a simple gift. It's a journal, and it's got a sticker. You can put a sticker on it if you want. You can put a sticker on your car. You can put it in a mirror. You can put it wherever you see it. Any, every day that you can see that, to say, you know what? 
You are 29. You are the ongoing story. And every journal also has a bookmark. And I just wanted to read to you as we close what the bookmark says, because we want this journal to be used. We want to encourage you to use it as a reminder to you that you are 29. The story is not over. Far from it. The amazing news is that you are part of the ongoing story of God. The 28 chapters in Acts reminds us that an extraordinary God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things, to change the world. Use this journal to write down stories of God at work in your life, stories of God at work in the lives of those around you, and then share these stories. Allow these stories to be used by God to remind you that he's not done with you. He has more of him that he wants you to see. Never forget that you are 29. And I'm thankful to be part of this community with you because I'm convinced that God's not even done with any of us. And I'm thankful that I get to be part of being 29 with you. A bunch of nobodies who know somebody, and that somebody is doing extraordinary things in our midst.